New environmental disasters are once again proving that the catastrophic consequences of climate change are already at hand. Meanwhile, the people of Cuba demonstrate in support of their revolution and government, efforts to prohibit the teaching of history of racism in America continue, and a new global spying scandal emerges. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's July 20th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. Once you subscribe, make sure to register for the next seminar with Brian this Wednesday, tomorrow, July 21st at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, what do we have in store for listeners this week? Well, there's so many important stories. Of course, we're going to talk about Cuba. We're going to talk about the effort by U.S. imperialism and the other major capitalist powers, the allies of the United States, to overthrow the Cuban revolution, destroy the Cuban government. This has been a dream of imperialism ever since the 1959 revolution brought revolutionaries to power and broke the dominance of the United States over the island. Of course, Cuba had been invaded in 1898 and remained basically a U.S. neo-colony up until 1959. We're going to talk about that. There are new important developments. But before we do, I want to make mention of what's going on with climate catastrophe all over the world. And I also want to talk about how the media is covering this obvious climate catastrophe that's visible, that's palpable, that's making headlines. But all of the coverage in the media doesn't suggest and has no urgency with any kind of suggestion that this is the final straw, that the evidence is so crystal clear that action must be taken, that we have to go immediately to a zero carbon economy, and that the only way to do that is to break the stranglehold of ExxonMobil and the other energy companies and the capitalist class and the Wall Street Journal. The media coverage is sensational because the stories are sensational, but there's nowhere in the capitalist media where you know anybody says, including the reporters or the editors, hey, this means that the system must be changed so that we can end our dependence on fossil fuels. The Washington Post, Canada's farmers brace for new heat wave as scorching summer leaves cherries roasting on trees. As devastating heat waves sweep swaths of the globe, farmers in Canada are facing a crippling phenomena. Crops are baking in the field. 
a heat dome roasted Canada in late June, leading to hundreds of sudden and unexpected deaths. The Guardian, German villages could be left with no drinking water after floods. Country starts debate over more efficient early warning system for future extreme weather events. That's the subtitle. It's not about like, what can we immediately do to stop this phenomena? It's like, how can we help get ready for the future, the inevitable catastrophes that are coming? Now, of course, maybe they are inevitable, but the only way to get to mitigation would be to change the system. I mean, it was such a like a biblical flood, a flood that was unlike anything that Germany had seen in more than a thousand years. Towns and villages devastated by extreme weather events in Western Germany. Quote, it looks like the infrastructure is destroyed so badly that some places won't have drinking water for weeks or months, according to the mayor of one of these towns in Western Germany. Here's the Washington Post. As the bootleg fire burns, locals are faced with realities of climate change, but remain skeptical. And then this whole story uh, sort of makes fun of the people who are conservative, politically conservative and right wing, who think that the best way out of the crisis is to pray more. Okay, it's easy to take you know pot shots at people who don't have a scientific basis for their thinking. On the other hand, what has the media really done and what has the government done to actually educate people, not only about the problem, but the solution? And the solution, obviously, is to go to a carbon zero sourced economy. Here's finally Wall Street Journal. Fires in Oregon, California grow as heat wave continues in parts of the West. Evacuation notices expanded for both the bootleg and Tamarack fires. Again, Dozens of wildfires burned across the western United States as the National Weather Service warned high temperatures in the northern plains could break records and dry, windy conditions from Montana to California could complicate firefighting efforts. The story goes on and on. I mean, the evidence is all here. Now, I wrote something a little while ago for the Liberation News website and Liberation School website. And it's about why revolutions will take place and why I believe there will be and must be a revolution in the United States. I said, failure to change how society produces and consumes energy is leading to environmental catastrophes and consequently social upheavals will create a revolutionary crisis for the capitalist ruling class. The ruling class understands this, but still refuses to move rapidly to the only solution to avoid or mitigate the catastrophe, which is to move rapidly to bring carbon emissions to zero. That goal is an imperative necessity. It is achievable, but to accomplish it requires a profoundly radical reorganization of existing economic structures, which is what the ruling class refuses to consider. The system of private-owned capital searching ruthlessly against all competitors for the maximum profit or maximum share of the market will not prioritize the achievement of a zero-carbon emission economy. When I read the media and the stories are so sensational and there's never any mention 
of this as a solution, it makes you feel like you're in this kind of dystopian, surreal environment where everybody knows what the problem is, they know what the solution is, but because you would have to actually socialize private capital, you'd have to have a socialist program, they won't talk about it. Right. And when you think, Brian, about the fact that the only people who are bringing attention to the emergency are indigenous people, like at Line 3 in northern Minnesota, they are being arrested. They're being kettled and blockaded by the police on their property so that they can't engage in protests. They can't engage in the type of action that shows the urgency of the matter, which is what you're talking about. So the very people who are out here ringing the bell, ringing the siren, are being arrested. And like we said last week, we have a protester from the, I think the Dakota Access Pipeline or the Keystone, one of the other pipelines, sentenced to eight years in prison. So it is a dystopia. It is a system of everything upside down. If the people who are trying to ring the bell, ring the siren, are being arrested and then even the activists in Europe, Greta Thunberg, she is maligned in corporate media and there are all these memes created about her like she's crazy, but she's from a generation that is taking this into their hands as an emergency. So yeah, that's the right example. I'm glad you mentioned the folks up in Hubbard County, Minnesota. I'm looking at Common Dreams. It's 25 sheriffs with billy clubs out blocking people on their own property. These are indigenous people on their own property. They're using the property for decolonization training and education about what Line 3 is about. People are coming from all over the country. So using this 1928 issue over an easement to the driveway, again, the sheriff is very open. We're doing this to stop people. They use this easement question from 1928 to blockade the driveway. So they've created an open air prison in Minnesota against people who are trying to stop global warming, people who are going to try to stop Enbridge from having a pipeline that is not only going through indigenous territory and not only going through the headwaters of the Mississippi River, but going under the Great Lakes where one-fifth of the world's entire freshwater drinking supply is, Enbridge, this Canadian company, wants to and is succeeding so far, unless the people stop them, from carrying out this pipeline to bring dirty tar sands oil at a time when the society and the world needs to go in exactly the opposite direction. Again, luckily, lawyers up in Minnesota, lawyers with the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund, people working with the Center for Protest Law and Litigation, they filed legal actions seeking a temporary restraining order to lift this blockade. But yeah, Esther, you're right. When you look at the headlines, you see the sensational stories, and then you think not only is the media not offering any obvious solutions, but they're also not talking about the fact that the police in the state are in fact intimidating, terrorizing, arresting, criminalizing people who are trying to stop environmental destruction. It's amazing. You know, one other dimension of this climate crisis, this catastrophic climate crisis that we're seeing more and more evidence of every day, is the enormous number of climate refugees that 
climate change is producing and will produce in the future. The United Nations estimates that there will be, by the year 2050, up to 1 billion climate refugees on the planet Earth. There are widely varying estimates. 1 billion is the worst case scenario. 200 million uh, is sort of the baseline scenario. Now, a few years ago, everybody in the world was talking about the refugee crisis because of primarily conflicts in the Middle East and North Africa. There are millions and millions of people trying to stream into more economically advanced countries to escape the chaos that many of those countries created in the first place. So that was a huge deal, a refugee crisis. That was 50 million refugees. There were 50 million refugees in the world when the whole world was talking about this refugee crisis. Imagine four to 20 times the size of that refugee crisis in the future because of climate change. So one story I saw last week that was really shocking, and it was actually these homeowners out in California whose wells are drying up. This heat emergency has been so severe and the fires have been so severe and the drought because the climate catastrophe has been so severe that homes in very, I guess, stable middle-class neighborhoods are drying up. People don't have water. You know, one woman, she hadn't taken a shower in a week. And so this catastrophe is hitting people in many parts of the country that are considered kind of stable, middle-class communities. And I kept thinking about it when I kept hearing Cuba being called a failed state, you know, because here you have not just these fires, major areas going up in flame, this record heat in communities that don't even have air conditioning. There's no infrastructure there to keep people cool, but you have people literally running out of water. And the water wars are beginning. And that's a really big part of the climate catastrophe. And the U.S. doesn't have any answers right now, just like it's not even acknowledging the problem. Yes, indeed. And instead of focusing on saving the planet and saving the environment, the U.S. is focused on things like overthrowing the Cuban government. And it's multi pronged, Walter. I mean, you have the blockade, which was tightened under Donald Trump, 243 more coercive measures, and Biden won't undo them. There's the economic blockade. There's a military threats all the time. Covert operations, terrorist attacks have taken thousands of lives in Cuba. There's also the propaganda war. And, you know, when you think about propaganda and how it works, it's very connected to the covert operations. I mean, I think we also have a clip from John Stockwell, who was the CIA station chief in Angola during the Angola War, where Cuba came to the rescue, really came and fought along with the Angolan freedom fighters against the seemingly omnipotent South African racist fascist apartheid military to destroy their ability to you know, determine the outcome of the war, the anti-colonial war in Angola, which, by the way, was the decisive turning point for the end of apartheid, too, inside of South Africa. But anyway, Walter, let's talk about Cuba and this multi-pronged war by U.S. imperialism to destroy a government in an island country of 11 million people that dared to break free. Well, a week ago, the U.S. media made it sound like the government in Cuba was teetering on the edge of collapse, that the people were taking to the streets in huge numbers. And the days of the Communist Party's 
leadership of the island were numbered. That is completely false. What we saw happen last weekend is hundreds of thousands of Cubans take to the streets all across the country in the capital city, Havana, and in smaller cities and towns across the country to say that they support the Cuban revolution, they support the revolution's government, and they oppose U.S. efforts to carry out regime change in their country to essentially reduce the country back to its semi-colonial status, the status that the island uh, you know, endured prior to the 1959 revolution. So these demonstrations, these pro-revolution, pro-government mobilizations were completely blacked out of the corporate media in the United States. I know that the big media outlets, the CIA, the State Department, the US government, they were hoping that Saturday would be a big day for them. They were hoping that the opponents of the revolution, the small section of the Cuban society that opposed the government would fill the streets and that they would get another round of images to plaster on every TV screen to write about in every newspaper. But that's not what happened. What happened was overwhelmingly the Cuban people showed that despite the grave economic hardships that they're going through, they understand that the cause of those hardships is the U.S. blockade and all of those other sources of pressure that you mentioned in your opening, Brian? Yeah, the U.S. media, it says it's the free press. Well, it's the media that's associated with the CIA and the Pentagon, not just only Wall Street. Nicole, John Stockwell, who we mentioned, did a great job in revealing how U.S. covert operators, the intelligence agencies, and the CIA actually completely dominate the media narrative, especially when it's important. Yeah, we have a clip here of former CIA agent John Stockwell, author of the book In Search of Enemies. And this is from a soapbox video. He's being interviewed. It's a couple of minutes long, and it's really fascinating. Here it is. There are other functions, however, some of them more legitimate than others. One is to run secret wars. Another thing is to disseminate propaganda to influence people's minds. And this is a major function of the CIA. And uh, unfortunately, of course, it overlaps into the gathering of information. You, you have contact with a journalist, you will give him true stories, you'll get information from him, you'll also give him false stories. You also work on their human vulnerabilities to recruit them in a classic sense, to make them your agent so that you can control what they do, so you don't have to set them up sort of, you know, by, by putting one over on them. So you can say, here, plant this one next Tuesday. Can you do this with responsible reporters? Yes, the church committee brought it out in 1975, and then Woodward and Bernstein put an article in Rolling Stone a couple of years later. Uh, 400 journalists cooperating with the CIA, uh, including some of the biggest names in the business. Mm -hmm to consciously introduce the stories into the press. Well, give me a concrete example of how you use the press this way. Well, for example, in my, my war, the Angola war that I helped to manage, uh, one third of my staff was propaganda. Uh, I had propagandists all over the world, principally in London, Kinshasa, and Zambia. We, were, we would take stories which we would write and put them in the Zambia Times and then pull them out and send them to a, a journalist on our payroll in Europe. But his cover story, you see, would be that he, would, he had gotten them from his stringer in Lusaka who had gotten them from the Zambia Times. But after that point, 
the journalists, uh, Reuters and AFP, uh, the management was not witting of it. Now our contact man in Europe was, and we pumped just, just dozens of stories about Cuban atrocities, Cuban rapists. We didn't know of one single atrocity committed by the Cubans. It was pure, raw, false propaganda to, to create a, an illusion of communists, you know, eating babies for breakfast. What's amazing there and so important, that's John Stockwell. He was a station chief of the CIA in Angola and he's the author of the book, In Search of Enemies, A CIA Story. Like Philip Agee from the CIA who managed the CIA affairs in parts of Latin America, John Stockwell defected to the side of peace and then he told the true story about what the CIA was doing. I really want to emphasize this because even when those stories came out last week about Cuba in the media, and all the media said the same thing, a whole bunch of leftists jumped on the bandwagon and said, oh, I support Cuba, but I don't support any sort of repression against the Cuban people, as if there had been some great repression against the Cuban people, because that's what the media narrative was saying. It was a full court press against Cuba. Then more and more of the stories started to, you know, come out, but most Americans don't know it. I mean, after the story fades, even if you do a corrective, it still isn't going to register emotionally, psychologically the same way as when the stories are, you know, top of the news, sensational, lots of drama, even hysteria. We have an audio clip from Breakthrough News where journalist Kay Pritzker sort of broke down some of that propaganda and how it worked. Again, this was a planned operation. I'm not saying the all the people who came out in Cuba, like in San Antonio de los Baños, one of the towns where people came out, they didn't have electricity. There had been no electricity for a day, and they just came out of their homes, and they were chanting, give us electricity. And the government went out and talked to people. The government, Diaz-Canal, the president, came right to the protests, as we talked about last week. He listened to people. He talked to them. They didn't demonize them. They didn't criminalize them. But there are counter-revolutionaries who are working with the United States and are working and being paid by the CIA to create a regime change environment to destabilize Cuba. So both things can be true. Some people can come out and have legitimate grievances, especially when there are severe shortages really caused by the blockade and the tightening of the blockade. But there are also counter-revolutionaries. Anyway, Nicole, I think we have the clip from, or part of the clip from Kay Pritzker in Breakthrough News. Yeah, Brian, we do have that clip. Again, it's a couple minutes. This is, again, Kay Pritzker with Breakthrough News, really going through some of the really important facts. Isn't it kind of curious that within hours of the initial protests in Cuba, they garnered the instantaneous attention of the entire U.S. news media, Congress, and even the president? I mean, there were literally hundreds of thousands of people in the U.S. protesting for Palestine, but that never got a hashtag or wall-to-wall -wall coverage. It was total radio silence. If this all seems suspicious to you, you're not crazy. There's a ton of evidence that clearly shows that fake videos, bots, and outright funding of protesters are being used to 
to make the protests in Cuba look way bigger and more significant than they really are. Let's take a look. Now, the media's been saying that these protests represent the will of the Cuban people. And while there are definitely videos showing a couple thousand or so people protesting, Cuba is a country of 11 million people. This might be why the media has been publishing misleading photos to make it look like the protests are much larger than they really are. For example, this CNN article heavily implies that the people in this photo are in Cuba. But people were quick to point out that the street sign in the photo is from Miami. One of the protesters is even wearing a MAGA hat. A bunch of mainstream outlets took it a step further by posting a picture of a pro-government demonstration but captioning it saying it was an anti-government demonstration. You can tell they support the government because they're waving flags that say July 26th, the day Fidel Castro and his guerrilla army launched its first attacks against the Batista regime. Only people who support the Cuban government celebrate this day. There were also several social media accounts posting videos of huge marches in other countries claiming they were videos from Cuba. Here's a video of a march in Buenos Aires that that people were claiming took place in Cuba. And speaking of social media accounts, what's up with all these accounts with zero followers, all created in the last few months, that have all of a sudden taken up an interest in Cuba? One thing that I think that's really important that Kay points out is this whole nature of the very sophisticated use of social media in Cuba, which you know we've seen in other places. And I think that it was a key strategy of those representing U.S. imperialism to get out in front of the social media campaign, which they lost in the most recent uprising in support of Palestine. Because in that situation, there were videos circulated showing people being thrown out of their homes in Sheikh Jarrah, the attack by Israeli forces on people worshiping and praying in Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third holiest site in Islam. And then when I look at even Black Lives Matter, and it was very important that for the issue of Palestine, for it to be linked to the issue of human rights and very much linked to the issue of Black Lives Matter here in the U.S. So you even had Black Lives Matter come out, you know, and they've been in the midst of a lot of controversy themselves, the global network here, but they came out in support of Palestine, came out in support of the Cuban revolution and made it clear that it is the embargo and the U.S. targeting of Cuba that is the problem, not the Cuban government. And it was very interesting to see how that they were systematically attacked in corporate media, like by the Atlantic. And these are the same corporate media that Kay Pritzker is talking about that, you know, you had this automatic, this quick denunciation of not only Black Lives Matter, but to jump on this story in such a dramatic way. I want to make one last point before we move on to other stories. And that is the Pentagon and the CIA care so much about the media and shaping the media story. And they use all available tactics because the reality is that the U.S. capitalist class is a minority class, and the U.S. capitalist government is dependent on keeping people somewhat in the dark or completely in the dark about the machinations of imperialism and the capitalist class behind imperialism. Because if the masses of people rebel, if the masses of people turn against the government or the dominant narrative, then of course there is no power greater than the power of the people. I mean, but that's the key element. You know, right before the Iraq war started in March 19th, 2003, the U.S. invasion, 
There were a number of people who were routinely on cable network news, including myself. I was on Fox News. I was on MSNBC, CNBC, CNN, routinely, like several times a week, talking about why the U.S. should not go to war against Iraq. And then suddenly, like about two and a half or three months before the war started, all of the people who were like anti-war were removed from the networks. You didn't hear from us again. Phil Donahue, even, his show, because it was anti-war, was taken off the air. And Esther, I'm sure you will remember that all of the coverage was then dominated by these new hired hands, and they were all retired admirals and generals. And the studio setup was like a picture of Iraq on the floor. And it was like, here's how the battle will go forward, was the idea of the inevitability of war. So when they couldn't really convince the American people straight out that the war was going to be a good idea, because millions of people literally were coming into the streets against the war month after month, again, literally, they had to go overtime with the media. And so later, a year later, we found out Bill Moyers did a special on PBS about how this was a Pentagon operation with the media to make sure that all of the commentators were retired admirals, generals, colonels, and the rest, because they were losing the battle of ideas war with the American people. I mean, again, never underestimate, never underestimate how significant the shaping of the media narrative is, because in fact, that's the only way for a government that represents a minority class of billionaires to maintain social control. Right. And so I remember the study that you were talking about and not only Bill Moyer's report, but just how there was so much important journalism really about what was called perception management before the Iraq war. And that's when a lot of people started to really understand the importance of having a real functioning independent press, not connected to the CIA, the Pentagon, and these obvious attempts to be a part of the system of misinforming the American people. Just one other example of this that I think is particularly relevant. You know, if the hypocrisy of media coverage is on full display, is especially on display when you compare their coverage of the demonstrations in Cuba with the demonstrations that happened in Colombia less than three months ago on the other side of the Caribbean. So in Cuba, a couple thousand people took to the streets. One person was killed. That person was participating in an armed mob attack on a police station. But in Colombia, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people took to the streets and actually participated in rolling general strikes that shut down the entire country. Not one person was killed. In fact, 75 people were killed by police during the repression of that uprising. And that number is perhaps a low estimate because many people simply disappeared. And the repression was carried out by a fully militarized force, including helicopters. The Colombian police attacked protesters with helicopters. This was just three months ago. And yet there was hardly a whimper from the U.S. media about the repression of demonstrations in Colombia. And in fact, the United States provided $220 million of aid to the Colombian military and police just last year. Of course, Colombia is where some of the agents who ended up killing, we think, President Moise in Haiti were from and were trained. I'll add just to lighten the mood a little bit, 
Bill Crystal, chief of staff for Dan Quayle, one of the essentially the one of the founders of the neoconservative movement, tweeted recently, one reason I'm for D.C. statehood. This might seem like a non sequitur, but it's not. He was one of the founders or, you know, at least one of the managers of the Weekly Standard, which was, of course, funded by Rupert Murdoch, just like so much of the other media that's out there. But he tweeted, one reason I'm for D.C. statehood, the growth in size of the republic and our distinctive manner of growth admitting states with equal status has always been a sign of our vigor. 60 years at 50 states is enough. You know, this sounds great. And then he keeps going. It's time for D.C., Puerto Rico, Cuba, as soon as it's free, maybe one or two more, question mark. <laughs> so he's all for D.C. statehood. Great. Puerto Rico, who I believe it's two thirds of Puerto Ricans prefer to go ahead and just be independent of this like neo-colonial relationship that the U.S. has. Cuba, which, you know, the vast majority of Cubans have zero interest in being owned by the United States again. Maybe some more. I mean, the goal here is clearly he's just laying it right out. Let's just accumulate whatever countries we can. Yeah. You know, a couple of weeks ago was the anniversary of when the United States annexed Hawaii. That was in 1898. That was the same year the U.S. invaded Cuba and invaded Puerto Rico. It turned them into colonies and semi-colonies. The U.S. wrote the Constitution of Cuba. The Platt Amendment in 1904 gave the U.S. the right to intervene without asking permission from any Cuban authority in the affairs of Cuba militarily. The U.S. naval base is at Guantanamo. That's part of Cuba. It's only there because of the annexation or the signing of these unequal treaties when the U.S. invaded Cuba. By the way, I don't tweet frequently, but I've tweeted something on Monday because I don't know if you all saw the picture of these Los Angeles Police Department wailing on demonstrators. This was a demonstration in support of trans liberation. The fascists, the Proud Boys were out. So there's like, it looks like a hysterical mob of cops in full riot gear beating the hell out of somebody, really beating them and beating them. And then there's a second image and a second tweet where a woman, young woman walks forward with her hands up in front of these cops who have guns that are shooting stinger grenades. And she says, we just want to protest. And she's five feet from them and they shoot her and she falls. They shoot her straight in the stomach. And I'm thinking like, none of that imagery came from Cuba. That's from Los Angeles. I mean, if that, if these images were available from Cuba, if the Cuban government was doing what people endured in Los Angeles on Sunday, that would have been all over the media. But nobody saw these pictures. I mean, maybe in LA they did. I'm not sure. But I only saw it because I saw it on somebody else's social media account. Again, this dominant narrative where American imperialism at home so represses people, 2.3 million people in prison, 7 million who are either in prison on parole or probation. Then you have when people went into the streets last year, Esther, you know, after George Floyd's killing, you know, 107 cities were places where the government used tear gas and pepper spray and rubber bullets to repress people. Again, when you think about how this is manipulated and managed, if the United States routinely locks people up, uses repression against protesters, invades other countries, occupies other countries, bombs other countries, imposes crippling economic sanctions so people can't get food or medicine or have electricity in the middle of summer 
is this not an example of the most extreme authoritarian type government? And of course, the answer is yes, it is. Yeah. And just to put a point on how important it is for the United States, these operatives, the Pentagon, the CIA, how important it is for them to control what people are seeing and hearing and and understanding. (laughs) You know, you have someone like Rubio in Florida kind of demanding that Biden improve internet access in Cuba so that they can continue this PSYOP operation with their fake social media, even to the point where they said that maybe we could float some type of balloons from Guantanamo Bay and with this internet access so that they can continue their campaign of disinformation on the island. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's so many different plots that the United States government has tried to carry out throughout the decades against Cuba. One that I think is especially important to remember here is that in 2014, it was exposed that the U.S. government had set up essentially a fake version of Twitter, a parallel version of Twitter that they called Zunzunio, Zunzaneo, to lure in young Cubans and to try to promote this type of propaganda disinformation. I mean, here's an article that The Guardian published at the time that this was coming out. At its peak, the project drew in more than 40,000 Cubans to share news and exchange opinions. But its subscribers were never aware it was created by the U.S. government or that American contractors were gathering their private data in the hope that it might be used for political purposes. There will be absolutely no mention of United States government involvement, according to a 2010 memo from Mobile Accord, one of the project's contractors. This is absolutely crucial for the long-term success of the service and to ensure the success of the mission. (laughs) So this is something that was set up actually not by the CIA, but by USAID, the United States Agency for International Development. Also known as a front group for the CIA. That's right. They work very closely with the CAA, but I think it just goes to show you how there's all these different types of institutions that are set up. Some have sort of a kinder, gentler face like USAID, right? You know, if you ask the US government, USAID is essentially just a disaster relief institution. There's the National Endowment for Democracy is another similar one. You know, they say, oh, well, we just want to support people who are fighting for democracy in their home countries. But of course, all of these are just fronts to funnel money to political forces that are willing to do whatever it takes by hook or by crook to do the bidding of the U.S. government and achieve its strategic objectives. You know, I'm glad, Walter, that you mentioned this fake Twitter that the CIA set up for Cuban young people hoping to, you know, lure them in. And again, completely disingenuous, completely a violation of international law. But If you remember, and some liberals and some progressives went to bat for Alan Gross. He was a USAID subcontractor who was arrested when he was sent to Cuba to help provide citizen access to the internet, right? Remember Alan Gross? He was held, finally he was released when the Cuban Five were released. That was part of the exchange. I mean, we had Patrick Leahy, the Democrat of Vermont, who was the chairman of the Appropriations Committee, State Department, and Foreign Operations Subcommittee back then, he said at the time, there is the risk to young, unsuspecting Cuban cell phone users who had no idea that this was a U.S. government-funded activity. 
There is the clandestine nature of the program that was not disclosed to the Appropriations Subcommittee, which has oversight responsibility. And there is the disturbing fact that it apparently activated shortly after Alan Gross, a USAID subcontractor who was sent to Cuba to help provide citizen access to the internet, was arrested. I mean, again, everybody, I when I see on social media some of the liberals and some social democrats and some people who even say that they're Marxists, the moment the media triggers these big stories, they rush to denounce the Cubans for, you know, using a heavy hand, when in fact, if you're the government of Cuba, everybody, you're a country that has 11 million people, your leadership has been targeted for assassination more than 600 times, you have covert operations run against you constantly, you have an economic blockade such that you can't get anything on the international market. When you're dealing with that and you know that the biggest, most powerful country in the world with the biggest military and intelligence budget in the world is 90 miles away, you're not going to have a strong state response. You're not going to have a state control against counter-revolutionaries. And every time any resolve is shown on the part of the Cuban government, and again, there's so little use of any kind of state repression or violence, but whenever there's any show of resolve, you can count on some people jumping on the CIA bandwagon and either wittingly or unwittingly lending their helping hand. Anyway, I'm really glad we talked about this. We can't think about the war against Cuba without understanding the covert operations and the media efforts working with the United States to create a narrative to put Cuba in the worst possible light. Um, Talking about clandestine operations, Nicole, there was another big story. Did you see the one about the Israeli company working with right-wing authoritarian, semi-fascist and fascist governments to crack down on opponents within those countries? Yes, I did. This is an update to the story on the Israeli company NSO that manufactures this program called Pegasus. I'll just run through real quick what that actually is for people. I mean, it's completely outrageous when you hear about it. This It's this program that can effectively, using a text, a WhatsApp message, an iMessage, can effectively take control of your phone and can extract your text messages, your calls, photos, and emails, can activate the cameras or microphones on your phone, and can also read the contents of encrypt- any encrypted messaging apps, including Telegram and Signal, can record calls, it can monitor your GPS data, it can look through your contacts, your calendar. I mean, it's pretty much everything on your phone. So this is a product manufactured by the Israeli company called NSO, And there's a bunch of new news out about it. You know, essentially, we know now at least 10 governments are believed to have been customers of that company, including Azerbaijan, Bahrain, Kazakhstan, Mexico, Morocco, Rwanda, Saudi Arabia, Hungary, India, and the UAE. In Mexico, it looks like a lot of this was under Enrique Peña Nieto, And I mean, it just goes so deep that there were 15,000 at least numbers requested for the Pegasus program. So that's, you know, 15,000 people possibly, you know, selected as possible targets to be surveilled. This was in 2016 and 2017. And they even surveilled, if people recall, the 43 students from Zenapa, the Royal Teachers College in 2014, there were 43 students who were abducted by police you know, later they came to find out the state had a, a big role in that. And 
even victims' families from the Ayat Zapina, the 43, victims' families were on this list to be targeted, to be surveilled, because it was such a strong movement that was, you know, people were completely incensed that these 43 people, these 43 students had just been completely disappeared. Even to this day, of course, there's, I think, only three people's remains have been found. And, you know, dozens of remains are people are completely still missing. So anyway, at least 50 people in Mexico close to the current president, including his wife, children, aides, and doctor, were all in a list of numbers that had been selected by government clients of, again, this NSO group to be able to surveil all of them. So just to put a finer point on it as well, this also played a role in Saudi Arabia. This played a role in Jamal Khashoggi's killing. He was being surveilled by these programs. And now we're seeing too that the, you know, the Israeli government is deeply complicit in this. They have to approve any of these contracts with any of these governments. So they know exactly what's happening. They know when they're encouraging NSO and other companies that are doing similar things, they know that all these licenses are happening. Did you see Ali Abu Nima's tweet from Electronic Intifada? <laughs> yes. He said, uh, contrast effective cover-up of Israeli government role in the NSO group spying with treatment of Huawei, a private Chinese firm that is accused by NATO regimes and their media parrots based on, quote unquote, suspicions of being an arm of the Chinese state. I mean, you know, this information that he's referencing is only now coming out from, you know, some news organizations, but it's been going on for years. And NSO, you know, has claimed this whole time, well, no, 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 you know, we only fight serious crime and terrorism with these tools, that's all they're for, when, you know, we're starting to see now just how clearly that is completely false, completely, completely false. Let's turn to another story. Esther, the South lost the Civil War militarily, but they won the war politically, even as late as the 1930s, and in many ways, even into the 1960s, history textbooks in northern states, including New York City, told the story of the Civil War from the vantage point of the South. It was only the communist-led teachers union in New York City that demanded that a Northern pro-North interpretation of the Civil War happen in American textbooks in New York City. But now we have a situation where, while Confederate monuments are being taken down, the Robert E. Lee monument was taken down recently in Virginia, there's an attack on teaching history, even the teaching of a correct version of history is being literally criminalized. Right. And, you know, as I think about our discussion today, you know, about Cuba, the ongoing U.S. destabilization efforts, you know, in Cuba, and even the ways that indigenous people in northern Minnesota are really in the forefront of the global movement to save the earth, you know, as a habitat, you know, for all of us humans, you know, I think this ties directly to this ongoing attack on what is called critical race theory, but is really an attack on teaching the real history of the founding and legacy of the United States, you know, based on enslavement and genocide against, you know, Africans and indigenous people. So I looked in, according to Education Week, at least 26 states have introduced bills or other measures to restrict what they are calling critical race theory or limit how teachers can discuss racism and sexism. 11 states, including Florida, which we've discussed on this show, have enacted these types of bans. 
So it's interesting because critical race theory, which was created by scholars in the 1970s and 80s, does put into a legal framework what we already know is true, that racism isn't just a product of individual bias, but it's embedded in legal systems and policies. So wasn't slavery itself embedded in legal systems and policies? Wasn't the betrayal of Reconstruction, you know, a legal and policy decision? Wasn't Jim Crow lynching and discrimination in jobs, education, housing, health care, systemic and part of policy. So I suppose you're not supposed to like say that. You're not supposed to mention it. Well, anyway, these politicians and pundits in effect want to dictate that to teach this real history will quote unquote, sow divisions among students and make white children feel guilty. And they continue this real attack around the country. It's very Orwellian. I think very authoritarian kind of very third Reich and they want to force on like a fake history that in effect justifies, you know, genocide because you're erasing the proof of barbarism of white supremacy that still exists today. So not only does the real history provide proof against what they're saying every day, there are these new horrors that give lie to these laws that they are enacting around the country. There, a lot of the laws are encouraged by Trump's example of creating this disgraced 1776 commission, you know, and I think we even mentioned how Texas was starting some type of commission there to basically, so that you couldn't tell the real history of what Juneteenth was about, not really talk about the real Texas history in terms of trying to retain slavery there. And of course, we know so much of the vitriol has been targeted at the 1619 Project created by Nicole Hannah-Jones, a Black reporter at the New York Times. So it's been very discouraging to see even like liberal or so-called left academics join in on bashing the 1619 Project, which really points out the systemic nature of racism, you know, at the founding of the country that is still manifested today. And just to connect it back to an earlier subject, I saw recently that Professor Hannah Jones had come out in support of Cuba as a place that actually was a lot less racist than a lot of other places. She was saying, you know, the socialist project there has really eliminated a lot of racism and is getting so much heat for it in the press right now, which, I mean, she's just speaking the truth that she's seen and that she knows it's completely outrageous. Right. And as far as like stories, uh, stories that are in the news right now, when we have to look at the fact that remains of indigenous children have just been returned to their people, you know, after a century of being buried in these kind of basically re-education camps or residential camps that native children were sent to after being snatched from their families. And, you know, how many tens of thousands of children, you know, were taken from their families in this country? In Canada, I think the count is up to 1,000 of unmarked and undocumented graves of indigenous children sent to these same type of residential boarding houses. You know, we still have this ongoing murder and disappearance of native women and the theft of violation of their treaty land that we were just talking about in Minnesota. You know, this ongoing, largely unpublicized, you know, murder and torture of black people at the hands of police. This is real. It's not theory. It's a fact happening now, just as it happened in the past. And I recently heard a police officer on 
television saying he was offended by someone suggesting that modern policing had its roots in slave patrols. But we know that's true. So there's this war over fact versus fiction, this war over what is true. And you have even the manufacturing of fake history, which again, I kind of related to what I've heard in terms of the Third Reich, in terms of how it was, you know, it was okay to create a fiction about Jewish people. It was okay to create a fiction and ignore the past about the people that they wanted to persecute. This is such a critically important story because this goes to the essence of U.S. capitalism. You know, and we've said it here on the show before that Malcolm X said, that you can't have capitalism without racism. And some people, some people I consider to be fools, took issue with that. And they said, well, look, look at Europe. Europe had, you know, capitalism developed, but it wasn't premised on racism. Well, Europe grew rich by colonizing all the people in the rest of the world, which is a form of enslaving them. I mean, when you colonize India and the British determine everything that happens in India, and Indians are murdered by British authorities when they try to control their own lives, that's based on colonialism. And colonialism needs a justification because these imperialist capitalist governments thought of themselves as God-fearing, wonderful people. So how do you justify a system based on slavery and colonialism except by creating sort of a racist, stereotypical narrative about the subjects of your enslavement? And so that's what it is. And also, how do you make sure that there are few allies within the other parts of the population, like poor whites and black people and indigenous people rising up together against the slave-owning ruling class, which was quite small when the U.S. was being settled? Well, you need racism for that, too. I mean, the whole system is premised on racism. And when you think about the U.S. then lecturing China the way it lectured Yugoslavia about the Muslim population in the province of Kosovo or for America with China, the conditions of the Uyghur people in Western China and the idea that China is perpetrating either a genocide or forced assimilation, one or the other. And the U.S. doesn't take responsibility for its own development as a capitalist entity. U.S. capitalism is seeped in racism. When one just thinks about what is worse morally, what is worse morally than slavery? Just like, think about it, like when a mother, an enslaved mother gives birth to a child, she does not own anything and she doesn't even possess the right to her child. That child is enslaved by the slave master. And if the slave master wants to sell the child because the slave master can make money, the slave master can do that. And the slave masters did do that. Like what system in the world is more morally repugnant than the system on which American capitalism is based? And it wasn't like a small period of American history from 1619 to 1865 is more than two centuries And then the next hundred years was a kind of semi-slavery for people in the South. I mean, again, the United States has no right to talk to any other country on these kind of issues. 
And until recently, I, I know that very often when we talk about the history, we'll say enslavement of Africans and genocide against Native Americans. But I think it was actually seeing recently the documentary Exterminate All the Brutes that made me rethink that both are genocides. Because what is slavery if it's not genocide? What is slavery if it's not what you just described in terms of basically tearing a child away from their mother, basically not allowing people to retain their culture, systematic brutality against people who live very short lives. And some people call plantations death camps. They don't really even call them plantations because it gives this kind of idyllic sense of like people living on a farm where they had enough to eat and they weren't worked to death, you know, and they weren't uh, treated like beasts, you know. When you were talking, it, it reminded me that since we're talking about Cuba in the show, that it's because Cuba and Haiti had revolutions where they want to break this chain of white supremacy that they are still targeted to this day. You know, that Haiti's never been forgiven for having a revolution that broke that chain. And Cuba right now is not being forgiven for taking away the plantations of the white supremacists in Cuba and the United States. When I spoke to Manolo de los Santos last week, he talked about how, you know, that they're not forgiven for taking away the plantation that this country enjoyed. Indeed. And one last thing about Robert E. Lee, you know, because his statue is coming down. Not only did he take up arms against the United States government in order to sustain and maintain the system, the system that we're talking about, the system of slavery, but, you know, he's often described as like a troubled person. He wasn't sure what side to be on. He was like a benign, wonderful guy, just his loyalties were regional, and so he had to fight with the South. I'm looking at an article in the media. We've talked about this some before, but I want to just emphasize who Robert E. Lee was. I mean, there's statues of him even all over the country, not just in Southern states. After the Civil War, this is from the National Park Service, by the way, National Park Service, part of their history project. After the Civil War, and about the same time that Robert E. Lee was called to testify before the United States Congress of Joint Committee on Reconstruction in the spring of 1866, see, he's not even in prison. I mean, he's called to testify. The National Anti-Slavery Standard, which was a newspaper, published an article by Wesley Norris, one of the enslaved people who Colonel, at that time, Colonel Robert E. Lee whipped. Now, Norris was one of three enslaved people on the Lee plantation who ran away. And they made the argument that they really were free people, that they were, that they were entitled to be free, but they escaped and they were caught. Here's what Norris says, quote, when we were sent back to Arlington, we were immediately taken before General Lee, who demanded the reason why we ran away. We frankly told him that we considered ourselves free. He then told us he would teach us a lesson we would never forget. He then ordered us to the barn, where in his presence we were tied firmly to posts by a Mr. Gwynn, our overseer, who was ordered by General Lee to strip us to the waist and give us 50 lashes each. This is with a whip. 50 lashes each, excepting my sister, who received but 20. We were accordingly stripped to the skin by the overseer, who, however, had this sufficient humanity to decline whipping us. The guy won't whip them, so Lee gets somebody else, 
a guy named Williams to do the whipping, Richard Williams. And he says, lay it on well to Richard Williams. Lay it on well. An injunction, Norris says, which he did not fail to heed. Not satisfied with simply lacerating our naked flesh, General Lee then ordered the overseer to thoroughly wash our backs with brine, which was done, meaning salt. Now, Lee never publicly contested these allegations, which were well known at the time. NPS finds one private letter where he says to a friend, oh, that's not true, that I never did stuff like that. But he never publicly tried to dispute these kind of allegations. This is who the United States government has statues up all over the country. I mean, anyway, we could go on and on, but it's a gross element of American history that not only is it a profoundly racist country and capitalism, as Malcolm X said, could not have developed here without racism, but the U.S. government really, in the main, does not do what's needed to do to educate the people about the true history of the country, get rid of these all of these creation myths, tell the truth about the so-called founding fathers, and I mean the founding fathers, not simply those who took up arms against the Union during the beginning of the Civil War. Well, Esther, thank you for continuing this story. And I want to also encourage people to listen to your show, On the Ground, which comes out Friday. You've been going at this important story over and over again. In fact, I consider nothing more important in terms of the formation of progressive, radical, socialist consciousness than this aspect as well. Anyway, we have one more story. It's really a couple stories, but it's what we're doing every week at the conclusion of this episode looking at the big stories from Liberation News with the liberationnews.org editor. That would be you, Walter Smolarek. Yes. So please go to liberationnews.org and sign up for our newsletter. Find the link at the top. One article that I want to highlight this week is titled Six Ways the Cruel U.S. Blockade Makes Cubans Suffer. We were talking at the beginning of the show about the blockade, the effect it has on Cuban society. This article lays out in specific detail in many different respects what exactly the U.S. blockade does to Cuba and the methods they use to try to strangle the Cuban economy and make Cubans suffer. So definitely check that out. Six Ways the Cruel U.S. Blockade Makes Cubans Suffer. Another article is titled, Imprisoned Palestinian Lawmaker Forbidden from Attending Daughter's Funeral by Israel. Halida Jarar is a prominent Palestinian leader. She's a member of the Palestinian Legislative Council, the official parliament of the Palestinian people. And she's a political prisoner held by Israel without charge under a practice, an infamous Israeli practice called administrative detention that allows Palestinian political leaders to be detained without charge. She was denied the right for release to attend her daughter's funeral. This is attracting a lot of well-deserved attention to her plight. So check out that article. And then finally, I wanted to highlight one titled, Hunt's Forgotten Prisoners Launch Hunger Strike at David Wade Correctional Center. This is about a collective of prisoners in Louisiana who have been transferred to a new facility such that they are completely cut off from their loved ones, from their families. They're subjected to cruel, degrading, 
torturous conditions and treatment by guards, and they bravely launched a hunger strike. Check out this article, Hunt's Forgotten Prisoners Launch Hunger Strike at David Wade Correctional Center. You can find the phone number to call the warden, Jerry Goodwin, and support these prisoners' demands there. All right, Nicole, that's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with Richard Wolf. And then on Thursday, of course, we have the real story. So stay with us all this week. And for those of you who are patrons, and we hope everyone who likes or enjoys the show becomes a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash the socialist program and subscribing so that we can actually continue this broadcast we're going to be having our monthly seminar on Wednesday night. Nicole, again, what are the details for the seminar? It's going to be 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. And all you need to do is go to the website, Brian, that you just said, patreon.com slash the socialist program. Subscribe at $5 a month or more, which is about 17 cents a day. And then you can register right through Patreon and then join us. Or you can subscribe for 34 cents a day. And that would be $10 a month. But any subscription, very, very necessary for us to be able to continue to bring you this kind of independent programming. You'll also get access to all of the past seminars in full. We have previews of the seminars up on SoundCloud, but as a full patron, you'll get access to all of the seminars that we've done. So if you miss them, you can you know, listen afterwards. If you want to listen back to, you know, we've done them since we started the show eight or nine, ten months ago. So you can listen back through all of them. So we have a lot more. Stay with us here at the Socialist Program for the rest of the week. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.